Welcome to the Redeemer East Harlem podcast. We pray this message leads you both to know and show the love of Christ in all areas of life. We will now dive into our scripture reading, followed by this week's message. Sunday of Advent, uh, and for some, maybe Advent is something that's a pretty new concept for you. Uh, maybe you've heard of the heard of the uh, the season. Maybe you've never really formally celebrated it. Uh, so let me just give you a, a little bit of uh, context. I guess the essence of what Advent is. Uh, Advent is part of the historic church calendar that celebrated the weeks leading up to Christmas. Uh, the term literally, it's the, the Latin word literally means coming, uh, and it's historically been a time where the church has celebrated essentially by uh, looking back to when Christ came, uh, but also looking ahead, kind of a longing for him to come again. Uh, and so as a result, this season is really a time, it ought to be anyway, a time of reflection. Uh, this is why we've curated some uh, different resources for you. Uh, we do this every year, but it's one of the ways to just kind of put in front of you some tangible opportunities uh, to celebrate the season, to reflect on the season. Uh, again, I, you know, Abe just mentioned it, but if you go to the website, we've got uh, a daily calendar. We've got a weekly video. Uh, we've got some specific resources that are just for, uh, for children as well. So we'd highly recommend and encourage you to uh, consider utilizing this season well through those resources. Um, But I also want to acknowledge that there's something really important to our understanding that this ought to be a season of longing and yearning, a yearning for Christ to come again. And the reason why I think that's important is that Christian discipleship, right, what it means to become a follower of Jesus ought to have this deep desire for this longing for the return of Jesus. And this season gives us a really unique opportunity to think about what it means to long for him. 
for really two reasons. One reason would be is that that longing, that desire for Christ's return, it binds us, it connects us, it unifies us to the ancient followers of Yahweh. And what I mean by that is, you know, the Old Testament believers, they longed for the coming of their Messiah. They trusted and believed for generations that he would one day come, and in Jesus, he finally came. And similarly, though we know who Jesus is now uh, in a way that they did not, we know who the Messiah is, we too long for his return. And I actually find great comfort in knowing that just as God was faithful to his people in the past and that his, his promises were fulfilled to them, so also will he be faithful to us. And the promise that one day Christ will return is something that his people can cling to and long, to, uh, long for now. Plus, we long for that day with the entirety of the body of believers for the last 2,000 years. I mean, there have been Christians for generations upon generations that have been longing for that day, and we, we are unified with them. And so there's that longing that's important uh, to remember that Christ is coming again. But the, the second thing that I think is important, reflecting on that longing, is also a reminder for us that while right now there is life and victory and joy to be, uh, to be had in the life of the Christian. It's available to God's people now. It's also a great reminder that the best is still yet to come. We have not fully experienced all that God has for his people. And to assume that we have all that God desires for us now results in what some call an over-realized eschatology, meaning it's an error that believes that we should experience victory and healing and prosperity and justice and joy right now in its fullest, when in reality we're still longing for the day when Christ returns and we experience all of those things in its fullest. And Advent, my friends, is a wonderfully unique opportunity. It's a time of the year when we can consider these things now to consider that longing, to not only look back at Christ coming, but also look ahead that one day he will return. And so with that in mind, today we're going to start a new series called uh, From Heaven to Earth, The Mystery of the Incarnation. And for the next four weeks, uh, we're going to look at the very first chapter of the book of John. John gives us uh, a really unique perspective on what it means for Jesus to have come. And it also helps shape very much how we see him uh, as one who will come again. And so what we're going to do is we're going to consider this overwhelming idea that God has come near. Through this series, we will consider what it means that Jesus, the light, the truth, the gift, as we're going to see throughout the book of John, has come. But today, we're going to begin our series by considering the fact that Jesus, in John 1, is called the Word. And to consider what it means for Jesus to be the Word. While this idea might not immediately strike us as important, I want to start this season by understanding the gravity of what John claims in these opening verses of his gospel account. And so to do so, I want to consider what it means for Jesus to be the Word, to be the Word as flesh, and to be the Word as a servant. Okay, so Jesus as the Word, the Word as flesh, and then finally, the word as a servant. All right, so first, Jesus as the word. What does that mean? Well, to begin, uh, if you read the various gospel accounts, 
Uh, you will notice many similarities between them, and, and you'll also notice a lot of other differences. Um, and the reason why I'm pointing this out is if you were to read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, uh, each of them begin with particular narratives about Jesus' birth. All of them give birth uh, accounts, the events surrounding Jesus' birth, each providing us a, a slightly different angle of what's going on at the birth of Jesus. And when reading the Gospels, uh, those three Gospels in particular, those are called the synoptic Gospels, you are reading accounts that serve like an instant replay in a football game or a basketball game. And what I mean by that is that an instant replay in modern sports uh, utilizes cameras that surround an event in the game. Each camera is capturing the same event, but it's doing so from a completely different angle. This is why there are slight variations in each of the accounts that you might read in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Not because they're different, but because they are from different angles, giving different perspectives for different purposes. So, the reason why I start there is if Matthew, Mark, and Luke's accounts are like an instant replay that tell us up close what is happening at Jesus' arrival, John's gospel account is like the bird's eye Goodyear blimp, capturing the grandeur of the event. He doesn't give an account of the events the same way that the others do. He does speak of things that are happening on the ground, particularly uh, for this birth, but he really focuses on the incomprehensible transcendence of the event. It's very high level. And this is most captured in his use of the term logos, or in our translation, the word. Now, the logos, the word in Greek philosophy, was the purpose or the meaning of existence. For the Jewish people of the day, the Logos was God's word, the absolute truth at the foundation of all reality. For both the Greeks and for the Jews, it was this intangible yet orienting force of the universe. The Logos wasn't something that you could touch or feel or study or measure, but it was through the Logos that we understood everything within our existence. Additionally, in our modern day, when I listen to uh, a lot of secular humanists and scientific de uh, determinists of today, they, the way they describe the laws of nature are very similar to the way the ancients would have described the Logos. I mean, in a sense, you, could, you can't really touch or feel or even study or measure the laws of nature in that they are intangible, and yet they exist nonetheless. I mean, you can study the results of them, you can see what they do in the universe, but what actually are, tangibly speaking, the laws of nature? And as a result, it's through those laws, though they, you know, because they exist, it's through those laws that we can understand the world. We can study the universe. And so even for a scientific, secular humanist, the laws of nature are a kind of logos. There's, a, there's this orienting force. There's a meaning of existence that you can, uh, you can interact with. And yet in the end, concepts like the laws of nature are really hard to actually define in tangible kinds of ways. You know, there's other concepts in life that we associate in the same way. I mean, just as an example, what is love? I mean, we know it exists. We can study and measure the effects of it. We can even orient our lives around it, and many people are even willing to die for it. 
But if it's more than just the firing off of neurons in our head, if, if love is something meaningful, it's hard to define what exactly it is. Not just how we experience it, but what is it exactly? Because even love is pointing us to something that's intangible. And I say all of this because fundamentally, the logos is that kind of idea. The word is that kind of idea. So when John says, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was, not, uh, he was with God in the beginning, goes on in verse 3, that through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. What's John doing there? John is saying that those eternal realities that we know exist to the Greeks, he's saying to the Jewish people, the meaning and existence of life, that law that you find to be so fundamental, which is the absolute foundation of reality, and even to secular humanists today, the laws of nature, all that exists in this eternal way, all of this can best be understood through the Logos. And the Logos has become tangible. The Logos has become flesh. Secondly, let's look at that. Verse 14 tells us that the Word has become flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. What is happening there? Well, Matthew, Mark, and Luke those synoptic gospel writers, they described a baby in a manger. They described a a baby born to a teenage mother who would eventually become a refugee and who would eventually live a very humble life. And John says that that baby in a manger is the eternal logos, the orienting force of the universe. That baby in Greek philosophy, the purpose of life, that baby in Jewish law that is fundamental to reality, it's that baby, that transcendent logos is now in this baby embodied. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. That word, that logos is God himself having become flesh. Now, another interesting statement that John makes in this uh, passage here, is the word that we translate made his dwelling among us. Some of you may know this. The Greek word for that sentence, he made his dwelling among us, is the verb form of the word tabernacle. Meaning it literally reads that the word tabernacled among us. Now what was the tabernacle in the Old Testament? Well, the tabernacle was the tent that served as a temporary location where people worshipped. I mean, in essence, it was a representation of God's presence with his people when they were in the wilderness. And now John is saying that the word, God himself, has set up a tent, has tabernacled, has dwelt among us. And this is, ought to be, mind-blowingly, inconceivably, and frankly, completely outside of anyone's ability to fully grasp. But it's especially, I think, true for many of us in the West. We actually have a really hard time getting our heads around what it means for the Logos to be uh, present and uh, tabernacling, to be uh, uh, flesh, in the flesh. You know, there's a lot of other Christian traditions 
In particular, I'm thinking about uh, Eastern Orthodox Christians and even pockets of Roman Catholicism that have traditions that are very uh, comfortable sitting in this kind of mystical mystery of what it means for the Logos to become flesh. What I find, though, for many of us is anyone who's been deeply informed by, uh, you know, in a culture deeply informed by the Enlightenment, everything for us must be empirical, everything must be categorical, and as a result, we really struggle to just sit with the incomprehensibility of this reality that the Logos has become flesh. Why? Because oftentimes we want to categorize what that even means, try to understand how we can analyze it. Uh, many Christian, Western Christian traditions, um, again, that are deeply uh, informed by the Enlightenment, they want to dissect certain things. We want to try to understand things in ways that are tangible. And the reality is, is that there's no way for us to fully get our heads around what it means for the Word, the Logos, to have become flesh. There's something mystical about that. There's something that ought to leave us in complete awe. We are people with limits. And so to conceptualize that which is without limits, to touch the intangible, to see the invisible, to know the unknowable requires some kind of action, some kind of strength outside of our ability to perceive the universe. And this is what's beautiful about the Christmas story. This is what's beautiful about what John is describing here, that the incomprehensibility of the Logos has now become something that is actually comprehensible, tangible, knowable. The Christmas story tells us something incredibly important, that the Logos, the Word, is not some vague idea, not some vague understanding of laws of nature or some vague meaning or purpose in life, but rather that the Logos has been and always will be a person, a knowable person. And that person, the Son of God, is the creator and the sustainer of all that we perceive. And the Logos, that person at Christmas, is laying in a manger, vulnerable as an innocent baby, in order to enter into our lives. Why? Because how else does one conceptualize the transcendent? How else does one know that the, know the Logos unless the Logos makes himself known? You know, that idea reminds me of a section in C.S. Lewis's Surprised by Joy. In there, he reflects on how uh, he really was an unlikely convert to Christianity. And he remembers the tension that he had with the idea of having a personal relationship with God. It never made sense to him. It sounded like an absurd proposition to him. As a literary scholar, the notion of him having a relationship with God was a lot like Hamlet having a personal relationship with Shakespeare. Uh, as a created character in Shakespeare's mind, Hamlet would not even know how to conceive of something like a Shakespeare. And so for Lewis, in part, this made the notion of a Christian God, a personal God, impossible. But C.S. Lewis's conversion came, in part, he describes, when he realized that there was a way for Hamlet to know Shakespeare. Lewis said this about that idea. He said, using my own analogy... As I now first perceived and suggested, if, here's, where, here's what he's saying, if Shakespeare and Hamlet could ever meet, it must be Shakespeare's doing. Hamlet could, 
initiates nothing. In other words, in C.S. Lewis's conception, Hamlet could interact with the world that all pointed to the existence of Shakespeare. However, he could never actually know Shakespeare unless, of course, Shakespeare willingly, graciously, and maybe even lovingly wrote himself into Hamlet's story. And this, my friends, is what's happening here in John 1. Jesus, the Logos, the intangible, the unknowable, the creator of all things, God himself, wrote himself into our story in order that we might know him and in Lewis's words, have that personal relationship with him that we would not be able to have had otherwise. And here's what I find most compelling about that idea. Is that Jesus Christ is the embodiment of the eternal, the transcendent of glory and power. Yet he has come in order that he might be approachable. We could not survive the fullness of his majestic glory. And so he comes in a way that makes him approachable. You know, if you remember... Uh, back in uh, Exodus 33, there's this great interaction between God and Moses that kind of proves this point, where Moses prays this very bold prayer to God. He says, God, show me your glory. And God's response to Moses was, I will cause my goodness to pass in front of you, but you cannot see my face, for no one can see me and live. But in our passage, when John says, we have seen his glory the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. What he is saying is that the glory, the same glory that would have killed Moses, is now found in the approachable and vulnerable baby in a manger. This is what we experience. This is what we're reading about in the Christmas story. And so with all that in mind, friends, I want to put something in front of us. Because I find this to be something that I myself wrestle with often. And I'd imagine that some of us do as well. I find that I, I tend to err in one of two ways depending on what's going on in my life. I, I err to see Jesus rightly. And here's what I mean. I find that sometimes I err by not seeing Jesus in his fullest. Meaning I don't see his glory, the Logos, who is now approachable. Or... There are other times where I might err, where maybe I recognize the power and the might and the gloriousness of Jesus. And yet, as a result of seeing him in that power, I also tend to have this unhealthy fear. Or there's a distance that there seems to be between me and him. That he, he almost feels as though he's unknowable. So I see him in his power and his glory, but I don't feel like he's approachable. And I find that we tend to fall into one of those two errors, that either we see Jesus in his fullest, and yet we don't see him as approachable, or we see Jesus as very approachable. We see him as compassionate and kind, and yet we don't see his power, his might, his holiness, his glory. We, we fail to see the glories of who he really is as the Logos. And as a consequence of that, maybe we don't trust him or obey him as we should because we have not seen him fully. But what I want to encourage us all today in this Advent season is as we look upon Jesus, this infant, in this infant we see the glory and the majesty of God, the Logos, 
the kind of glory that would completely consume us, and yet it's an unapproachable, vulnerable baby. To see Jesus as both approachable and glorious is what it means to see the Word as flesh. But there's one final thing that I want to point out here. Is that we're talking about these very grand ideas of the Word becoming flesh and approaching Him as this approachable baby. But what is the purpose of Him coming? Why has He come and wrote Himself into our story? Well, we can't understand the real glories of what is taking place during this Advent season, during the Christmas celebration, without also recognizing that Jesus, the one in that manger, the Word, is also a servant. Let's look at that finally. I included a passage from uh, Philippians 2, which describes Jesus in his incarnation. Uh, This section of Philippians 2, um, many call the Christ hymn, uh, and it's uh, it's likely a a very, it was a very well-known hymn amongst the many churches that existed in the early church, and some scholars even note that that hymn in Philippians 2 was written probably about 10 years after the resurrection of Jesus and had circulated, and this is what uh, the hymn that Paul is uh, reminding uh, the church in Philippi about. This is what the the hymn says about Jesus. It says that Jesus, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross." See, the incarnation, God as flesh, must be seen not just through the context of Jesus in a manger, but also Jesus on the cross. The glorious and mighty one came in humility and in vulnerability, making himself killable so that he might be approachable, but also that we might know the extent to which We were in need of salvation. This is what the Christmas story is ultimately about. The extent of our sin and the the pervasiveness of it required the Logos to enter into our story in order to change the directory that we had been, trajectory that we'd been on. You know, if we err by seeing Jesus only as gentle and compassionate and approachable, never forget the reason he came to do that. Because without the work of the cross, we would never have what it was needed in order for us to actually be in relationship with God. Our alienation from him comes as a result of sin, and that sin is so severe that God himself came in the person of Jesus. However, remember the, the other way that we can err. If we err in the other direction, you know, we know the extent to which sin has marred this world and our own life. But maybe you feel like God is uninvolved or he's not near. Remember that God takes sin so seriously and the brokenness of this world so seriously that his love compelled him to come, that you might know him. We cannot forget both of these things, that God, is, or Jesus, is both this uh, majestic one who has come to be approachable, but also to remember that the reason why he came was because of the severity of what was taking place in this broken, sin-filled world. Jesus Christ came as a servant, seeking to care for his people, whom he loves and for whom, for whom he was willing to lay down his
his life. Jesus could have, he could have come in power and might. Right? He could have shown us the majesty of what it means to be the, the Logos. But he came in gentleness, and that's what we celebrate now, this season. And so I pray that the Christmas season, in this, over this next four weeks or so, as we prepare for the big celebration that's going to come, I pray that we are so overwhelmed by the notion that this mighty king, this Logos, the meaning and purpose of life, the Son of God, has come to be approachable. He's come in order to be a servant to us. I pray that that provides us with a depth of celebration this Advent season. May we not get distracted by all the very good things that we'll be doing this season without also at the same time focusing our attention and our affections on what it is that John describes, that God has come. And he's come in an approachable way, a baby in a manger. Let's pray. Father, we thank you, Lord, for what it is that you have accomplished in Jesus. Uh, we thank you that the purpose of life, the, the intangible things that make life possible, make life worth living, I mean, all of that is embodied in the person and work of Jesus. Lord, there are, of course, so many other things that uh, distract us from being able to reflect on that truth this season. But Lord, I do pray that you would help us, lead us, guide us by your Spirit to be able to reflect well on what it means for Jesus, the Logos, to have come. And Lord, I pray that that would produce a depth for us this season, a profound, may it be a profound season. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Redeemer East Harlem Podcast. For more information on our church, and how you can support what God is doing through our church, go to www.reh.nyc.